Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. What a year that was. 2022, the year of the perma crisis, the year of war in Ukraine, the ongoing oppression of women in Afghanistan and Iran. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. It was also the year that brought us Sharon Horgan's amazing Bad Sisters, which was just a fantastic televisual feast of amazing Irish women actors. And it's also the year we got another series of the utterly fantastic White Lotus. So wasn't all bad. And the Ireland women's team qualified for the World Cup too, of course. So there was a lot going on as always. We gathered three wise women together to discuss it all. Irish Times columnist Jennifer O'Connell, examiner columnist Alison O'Connor and Maya Ostovar, an Iranian academic based in Galway. And I began our look back at 2022 by asking Jennifer to remind us of something tragic, and actually seismic that happened right back at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I suppose for me, it was a moment that happened, which I don't think any of us will ever forget on a beautiful, bright afternoon, not unlike the day that we're recording this podcast of January the 13th. It was a blisteringly cold day and a young teacher, Ashling Murphy, decided after having finished her job as a primary teacher that she would go for a run along the canal banks. And by tea time, she was dead. And we all, I think, know a bit about uh, the circumstances of that. But I suppose what really sort of struck everybody and sent tremors, I think, across society was the ordinariness of what she was doing that day. And the fact that she, you know, she finished her job and mid-afternoon she decided to go for a run. And it started a really important conversation almost immediately, I think, within hours of the news emerging that that somebody had been murdered in, in that way. It started a really important conversation about violence against women and, and where we're at as a society. And unfortunately, since Ashling Murphy's death at the start of the year, uh, a further 10 women have died as a result of violence, making 2022 actually, by my calculations, the worst year for violence against women in a decade. So by you know the Irish Times in, in the summer, we published a major report on violence against women called Stolen Lives. It was based on the women's aid uh, data that they've been keeping since 1996, looking at the full extent of of the issue. And since then, our numbers differ slightly, I should say, from women's aid's total number, because there there are some um, that we chose not to include for legal reasons or or based on other advice. But since then, in, in all, since 1996, 246 women have died in this state through violence and, and 11 of those were in that last year. And one of the things I think that Ashling Murphy's death sort of started a conversation about was the way that we we talk about and don't talk about violence against women as a society and some of the myths and the stereotypes. You know, one of the things that I think really came home to a lot of people was the sort of stereotype of, of the quote unquote, the good victim, you know, that Ashling Murphy 
that the story of her of her murder maybe got more attention than the story of the killing of other women um, in the state because she was seen as having been somebody sort of blameless in the sense that she was out in the afternoon. And then that raised questions about whether or not that meant that women who were coming home at night or women who were killed in their own homes or women who were drinking or women who were involved with, with the man that ended up killing them were somehow like less worthy of attention. And I think that was a really that was a really worthwhile conversation. It was a really important thing that came out. And the reality is, I suppose, that, you know, obviously there's no such thing as a, a good victim or a better victim. But the reality is that the vast majority of women who have been murdered in the Women's Aid database and in our own figures that we've looked at were murdered by somebody that they know. And I suppose the archive underlines a few things that that we already know. And one is that, you know, women are most of the time killed in their own homes they're most of the time killed by somebody they know. And the most dangerous time in the life of a, of a victim of abuse are in the, w- the weeks immediately after she leaves or she makes the decision to leave. So, you know, it, um, it, there was a UK study which found that 87% of women were murdered within a year of making a break from the relationship um, and 55% in the first month. So while a case like that of the killing of Ashling Murphy is extremely um, rare um, and horrifying, I think, because of its rarity and, and the complete randomness of it, we do have a major issue with violence against women in this society and we haven't spoken about it enough. And the fact that here we are in 2022 and we've seen more women dying through violence this year than we have in a decade is something I think that's really disturbing and really horrifying. So the year sort of started on a really grim, depressing um, and frightening note for a lot of women and it's ended in the same way. Alison, do you want to come in on that one? Because um, I know you've written about it and it's something that you uh, have commentated on a lot. And actually, Helen McEntee as well, you know, came out with the new strategy during the year in response. I suppose I was reflecting on on it, like as we come, this happened in, in as Jennifer said, um, outlined so well at the beginning of the year. And now we're coming to the end of the year. And I suppose... It does feel, I mean, to hear those figures and the number of women that have been murdered this year, I mean, there felt like there was such a momentum then back in January and that this sense that things were really going to change. Um, now, I'm not saying that they won't. There there has been considerable government action. But I suppose it's just the sense that, and I'll get on to that in a second, what the government did this year, but just the sense that, that society and these attacks against women have continued as per is the really upsetting bit. I think at that time, we all reflected on the violence against women in their home, women being murdered, but also at that level of just what was being mentioned in WhatsApp groups, women being excluded from golf clubs. I mean, at at every level. And I suppose it was the stuff that we didn't even kind of, that we just took as part of our normal day. The I'm very conscious now since then if I'm going out for a walk at night, that actually, no, I don't feel safe and that I watch my route. But I would just have done that instinctively before and not thought about it or felt resentment, very conscious of my my teenage daughters. So if there's an overhang, it's that. I mean, I think in time, Ashling Murphy and her dreadful death and the suffering of her family, there will be a legacy. But I there is also this real bitterness for me attached to the sadness that so much has gone on as normal and that, I mean, it was never going to, it was never going to be, I suppose we, in the aftermath of it, as we 
thought about it, we were almost expecting miracles across society and, and things just don't happen that way. But I suppose it's important to say that Helen McEntee, the, the minister for now, to be fair to Helen McEntee, even before this this yeah. murder took place, um, she had said that it was one of her priorities. And uh, during the summer, she launched the third national strategy on gender based violence. Now, there are some big headline issues in that a new agency that would coordinate state efforts it would be statutory agency, you know, with an annual action plan, because it was said, always said that, that it was too diverse across all government departments, that nobody was really in charge so that this would mean there would be responsibility and there would be somewhere and somebody to go back to. And the other thing that was huge at the time, got huge coverage, was the uh, incredible lack of refuge places, how in some counties that there were none. So at the moment, what they were looking at was the doubling of refuge places from 141 to 280. And then also, because we see, I mean, the, the statistics in terms of sentencing and uh, and court cases, you know, not not being progressed at all. But there's a proposed doubling of the maximum sentence for assault causing harm. Now, that's one of the most common offences in domestic abuse cases, and that would be from five to ten years. And I suppose another one that I think is really important in terms of education, obviously educating your children starts at home, but that within schools you're updating the curriculum to do with consent, course of control, domestic violence and also safe use of the Internet. So I think that if if those it's too soon to say you know, how effective those things have been. Like this a new agency, I think it's the start of we're 20, start of 2024, that that's meant to be up and running. You just hope that in the meantime, that with the distance from Ashling's death, that the momentum isn't isn't lost. And I suppose it's it's up to women to, to keep the foot and the pedal on it. Well, women and men, Alison, I think, because one of the things we did in response to Ashling Murphy's death was we had three men on our talking about what men can do to help in the fight against violence against women. And I think increasingly men are getting on board, but I know what you mean. It does always feel like it's, no, and I heard it's left it, to us. I remember, I remember that episode and it was particularly affecting. And I think that um, we definitely need more of more of that and to hear more of that. And I do think that at that time in the week, the really acute weeks afterwards, the sense of shock, it caused a lot of men who would not normally have had that conversation um, to do so. But equally, there was a lot of men or some men who I came across who I would consider to be um, good, good men, and I would still consider them to be good men, but who would, you know, if you probed a little deeper, you f- I found myself being a bit disappointed, actually, <laughs> um, or that maybe I'm trying to remember back now that they weren't advocates. It wasn't enough to just be on the sidelines and not say anything, but that they weren't yeah. advocates or that they weren't saying, listen, I'm I'm not happy with the with this line of conversation. Yeah. That they're more willing to be on the sidelines. It's not my fight. I'm not going to get involved. Although I I think those people are still very much there. I just think there's more, there's a growing movement of men who realize they have to be. They're part of the problem. They also yeah. have to be the solution. Well that's you know? also where I think the education yeah. bit is key. Mm. You know, get in early, get at them early. One of the things that I think was really cheering for me this year was that this was, I think, the year at last. And we've been asking for a long time for good men to see themselves as part of the problem in the sense that if women don't feel safe on the streets, then it's up to men to help us feel safe. Even if they think I, you know, I've never abused anybody. I've never harassed anybody. I've never catcalled anybody. So it's nothing to do with me. And, you know, this isn't my problem. But I think now this year they kind of realised for the first time, God, women actually don't feel safe. So maybe I should proactively, if I'm walking alone down a darkened street 
in dusk or at evening time, I should cross the street. It is actually on me to proactively make this woman feel safer. I should hold back. I should let my footsteps fall away so that she's not trying to kind of speed up to get away from me. I should walk across the street. I should make sure to ignore her. And I think that for me, I heard a lot of men having those conversations this year and, and kind of asking women, what can we do and what should we be doing? And I think that was a really positive thing that men sort of, the penny finally dropped, that just because you're not actively an abuser does not mean that you're not part of the problem. Yeah, I just on I mean again to be more to to add to that positivity if I may. Um I remember <laughs> writing about um a newsletter that went out nationwide in the GA. It was if I remember correctly there um I think it was their equality officer it was a male. He wrote a really good piece about Ashley Murphy's murder, but also about that thing of nightclubs, WhatsApp groups. And I mean to see to see that in a in in something like the GA and I'm not I'm not picking out the GA as being particularly sexist or, or or whatever but i'm saying that it is uh it is an an organization i suppose that we would see as being um predominantly male there's a separate female organization um but that it 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 would let me put it this way it would have work to do so to see something like that being sent out in a national communication was also really encouraging okay i want to move on to maya ostevar who's joining us from Galway. you're very welcome maya as well and and we're speaking of the death of ashling murphy but we also want to talk when we're reflecting about 2022, about the death of Massa Amini, which happened in September this year. So Maya, talk to me about Massa and how her death became the catalyst for an incredible women's movement in Iran, a women's movement that was already um, in train uh, for a long time. Yeah, exactly, uh, Roshin. So one of the memorable moments, uh, I think, for for Iranian women and for many others around the world was the photo of Massa that went viral uh, on the bed in, in the hospital. And after a few hours, we heard that uh, she was basically, she was dead. So the, the first moment was that photo that went viral from her, um, like lying on the bed, uh, because uh, she was arrested for showing her hair by the hijab. She was arrested by, by the hijab police and then beaten to death, basically. After that, what happened that many of us didn't expect because we have seen such violence before, such instances before, and they didn't lead to such movements. Um, but this time, uh, what happened was that women in Saqqez, in, home, in the hometown of Mahsa, uh, a Kurdish city, they went to her funeral and around her grave, they, there were these videos um on social media from them taking off their scarves and waving it in the air. And for us, that was a moment that, okay, these these people are creating something from, from the death that we didn't expect. And a few, I mean, after that, uh, people around the country, they joined this movement. And last time that I was on your podcast, I mentioned this scene that for me, it was like, I was watching this video and it was like a dream coming true for me. There are pe- people in a group around fire and women and men, both of them, and they were dancing and women in the center, they were dancing and burning their scarves in the fire. And for me, it was like, wow. I mean, I it was so sudden. Uh, I never expected to see women burning their scarves uh, in Iran. And from that moment, I thought 
there's no go back from here. Uh, this is really the turning port, point. If women are burning their scarves as symbol symbol of oppression for them uh, all these years, we are moving towards a revolution. And I mean, when you when you invited me for the podcast, I uh, posted a, a tweet asking people to tell me about the moments of Iran revolution that they they remember as memorable. And there were so many moments that they were mentioning, <laughs> and it was hard to choose uh, among them. But definitely, for example, one, I mean, if you, and all in all those moments, women are really present. They are kind of leading. For example, there was this photo that you might have seen from a young woman named Roya Pirai, uh, whose mom was killed um, during the protests. And she was... Um, I mean, she was standing next to her grave uh, with uh, her hair shaved um, in her hand. And she was standing there without a scarf, uh, like very br- bravely. And that photo also uh, went viral. And we have had, I mean, apart from Mahsa, we have had other symbols of resistance in this revolution. Young girls like Nika, like Sarina, uh, who we have known after their death unfortunately. Uh, and they have become also symbols of this, this revolution. And there are, for example, there's this video from a young woman, 22-year-old, Azale Chalabi. She was filming uh, a protest, um, I think, two months ago, and she was present in that protest. And she was basically chanting, chanting a slogan with the crowd, uh, which means, um, don't be scared, we are all together. And as she was saying that we are all together, we are watching the video from her eyes and she's suddenly shot. So it's like we are shot and the the camera, the phone basically uh, fall on the ground. So it was um, it was so shocking. And these are the people that are basically recording the moments of this revolution. Uh, These are our journalists on the ground. Uh, and right now that I'm, I'm speaking to you, I'm, I mean, last time I told you that I'm hopeful. This is for one of the, I mean, this is the first time that I'm hopeful for the future of Iran and the region, because this is a progressive feminist movement, I believe. But you know that the government is uh, trying hard, violently, violently to crack, crack down this movement. And there have been executions two executions um, during this week. So I needed to talk to, to talk about this too, because these two were also very young men who were arrested with like false charges. Um, and from the arrest, from the moment of the arrest until the execution, there was le- less than one month. And they, they have been under torture, torture and they have been executed finally. And we are afraid that this is going to continue. There are like at least 12 people on the death row right now. And we are hoping to see serious actions from the international community so that probably we can stop yeah. the executions. I mean, because Maya, everything you've outlined there, I mean, it's it's quite difficult to, to be hopeful, especially when we're seeing images of public hangings, which, as you just mentioned there, it's it's so shocking and disturbing. They really are. They seem to be amping up the the response to what you say is a progressive feminist movement. Roshin, may I ask? Could I ask Maya, like the the brutality of of those executions and the fact that they're using a construction crane and that? I mean, 
the regime is obviously trying to send out a strong and brutal signal. But would Maya think that that this could be a sign that they're they are really under pressure, that they're sensing that they're, you know, that they're they're using such um, bold and brutal tactics? Is, is that a way? Is that one way of looking at it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, they, they feel that they're under pressure. And at the same time, they want to, I mean, I think they want to send this signal because, okay, there have been international support. They want to send this signal that we don't care. If we want to kill people, we are going to kill them. Whether I mean, we, And we don't care what the West is going to say. Also, they want to scare people, of course, to not, to not go to the street, to not protest, to, to say, okay, see, if you are not killed on the street, you are going to kill, if you're arrested, you are going to kill afterwards. So yeah, of course, they, are, they want to send these strong signals to to silence people. But um, until now, we have seen that they haven't been successful. People are just getting more and more, I mean, they're getting angrier. And yeah, there's this saying that their anger is going to get bigger than their fear, basically. Uh, and I think that's that's what's happening right now in Iran. Um, Maya, we're going to come back to you in a bit to talk about the women in Afghanistan as well. But Alison, I want to come to you for one of your memorable moments, if that's OK. Yes, Roisin. One of mine um, was in, in September um, when actually it was, I heard this on, in October, I put a query into the Department of uh, Equality Minister Roderick O'Gorman's department. And this related to a change in legislation. I mean, I won't get into too much of the technicalities of it, but there was a work-life balance bill, which actually had come from the EU. And as a result of that, we had been told earlier that there would have to be changes to our, basically to our maternity acts, the laws that govern um, you know, giving birth, maternity leave, all of those things in, in this country. And that as a result of those changes, in an effort um, and a, a proper effort to protect trans people, that they too would be able to avail of these. Um, but the outcome of that was going to be that the word woman was going to disappear from our maternity legislation, which I have to say I found really an utterly extraordinary thing and that um, it, it simply it simply wasn't fair to women from, from, from my point of view. Now, there was a bit of controversy about this and speaking to people, a number of people told me that this was an issue that had come up during the abortion referendum and the legislation on abortion, but that they had managed to cover that, that, it, 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 that women were included um, so eventually uh, um, they came back. I happened to put in a query and the department came back to me saying that actually this was changed now and that it would be uh, read woman or other person. And I think that's very fair. It is, as I said, really important that trans people are protected, maternity leave, lactation breaks, um, things like that. So I considered that uh, a victory, I have to say. Victory seems the wrong word because, again, this is a very difficult area and it's it sounds like it's triumphant, but it it really pleased me and it felt like the right the right action to take. Well, I think the fact is that the wording includes everybody and that's the, the victory if there is one. I mean, Jennifer, you've written a lot about on this subject. Having woman and another person just makes everybody feel like they're included in the legislation. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of the fair and sensible compromise that you kind of wonder why it couldn't have just been completely obvious from the get go that this is what we should be saying. Um, and I, it worries me a bit because as somebody who's who's written about the so-called debate about uh, about trans people and about trans issues, a lot of it feels, I think, to me, a bit manufactured and a bit performative. Um, 
you know, a lot of the conversation. And, you know, and I know that people feel really strongly um, about the idea that women's identity is being erased and um, that there may be, un, quote unquote, unintended consequences of, of gender self-ID. And But I think the reality is that Ireland has been getting on with this, you know, really well so far. Um, gender recognition has been in place for, for seven years now. We've had very little of the kind of very toxic, very divisive uh, debate that you see in Britain and, and the US. Um, maybe until this year. And I do think that trans people were right to feel a little bit more fearful this year and to sense that they were identifying, I think, a worrying shift in the narrative um, and all of these issues that we'd sort of just been getting on with and reaching quite sensible decisions on and quite, you know, quite humane compromises um, as like like exactly what Alison outlined there. Um, I think this year there was a feeling that that maybe that was slipping away from us a little bit and that we were going down this rabbit hole of, of you know, very sort of divisive and very nasty debates and very kind of personalised language. And I suppose when I think about this and when I write about this and, you know, as a woman, I'm obviously aware of of, of the language about women and, and how hard, hard we fought for our rights. But I do feel as though it's often not a fair debate, you know, that on the one side you have a group of very well organised, um, well educated middle class uh, women with a platform. And on the other side, you have one of the most marginalised and one of the most vulnerable communities um, in society. And, and and I sometimes feel like it's it's not a fair debate. And I just hope that next year um, in 2023 that we're able to kind of we're able to get back to the kind of conversations that we were having up until this year, which I think like weren't not everything was perfect about the way that Irish society talked about this. But I think that it was more fair and it was more balanced and it was maybe a bit more inclusive. Jennifer, you raise a really interesting point there, because even in relation to this change, you know, when new legislation is being introduced and um, often in, in these sort of circumstances, they will consult NGOs, um, you know, groups like that. And the, for instance, the Women's Council said that now I didn't see them saying it very loudly, but they said that they had never uh, called for this. They had never called for women to be taken out of the, the legislation. Uh, I heard somebody on from Tenny, the group that represents trans people on News Talk one day, they said they weren't in favour of it. So you would have to you would have to ask yourself, well, where has this come from? Because I think ultimately, as you said, the trans group are an exceptionally vulnerable group and this sort of thing it it doesn't help the group at all because it gets a lot of people annoyed who would traditionally be supporters of of trans people you know so it it, I, I could never get to the bottom of despite my best efforts why this had happened in the first place well, let's go back a bit to 2022 again um, and a bit more of a lighter story, Jen, that you want to bring in, <laughs> which is about the Wagatha Christie trial. And you might have to remind some of our listeners who mightn't have followed it as closely as others, but it was quite the spectacular court case. Yeah, actually, I mean, there was kind of two big trials this year that um, provided us all with a bit of light relief. But I think they also shed light on kind of a darker undercurrent um in, in women's lives and in, in the way the media talks to women and uh, about women. Um, but yeah, the first one was the Wagatha trial um, and it happened in May. I had to remind myself of the details of this, actually. It's amazing. So much has <laughs> happened since then. It feels like about a decade ago. Um, and I suppose like initially it was kind of hard to muster any sympathy really for the very entitled um, and lamentably, I would say, unself-aware pair at the centre of it. So there was Rebecca Vardy, who is a model and media personality, and she's married to a footballer. 
Um, and she was suing Colleen Rooney, who's the wife of another footballer. And I think for once we can all agree that the identities of the men in this story are completely irrelevant. Um, so Rebecca Vardy famously <laughs> claimed that she was defamed when Rooney publicly accused her of leaking stories to the press following a very complex sting operation um, on Instagram that I think most people remember when she went, you know, dot, dot, dot. It's Rebecca Vardy. Um, so the cl- the case played out in the London High Court and it was highly entertaining. It had it all. It had sort of the sleuthing and there was, you know, a bit of football and there was pigeon jokes and there was a Peter Andre cameo, if you remember. Um, and my favourite bit was when a mobile phone that had crucial evidence mysteriously toppled into the North Sea. Um, but for all, you know, we all found it really diverting and God knows we needed a bit of diversion this year. Um, I think you, you had to also kind of pull back the lens a little bit and look on it as as a, a product of a tabloid culture that I think it's safe to say despises women. Um, and the thing for me was that, you know, it, it was the tabloids who kind of created uh, Colleen Rooney because they turned her if you remember Roshin you and I and Alison and, and Maya as well you know we probably are all of a vintage where we remember that 16 year old in the puffer jacket with the plaits and the school uniform who was completely guileless you know heading off to school and within a couple of weeks his son had kind of christened her a top chav um, and she became part of wag culture which in fairness to her she has played really well I think she's managed to kind of maintain her her down-to-earth uh, demeanor while being this, you know, this this hugely commercialized product. So that was kind of the background against um, that which, you know, this trial was playing out. And I found myself, as the trial went on, being increasingly disturbed by the references to to kind of Wagatha and the way that that um, the two women at the centre of it were being demeaned and everybody was laughing about it. And there were actually some quite upsetting moments. You know, Rebecca Vardy broke down in the witness box and, um, and everybody was, there was just this sort of feeding frenzy around it. And then not long after that, uh, there was another trial which, you know, similarly only kind of more ramped up and even more global, which was the trial of um, Amber Heard and uh, Johnny Depp. Um, and the central question, it was technically a defamation trial, which everybody seemed to forget. Um, and it was about whether or not Amber Heard had defamed Johnny Depp when she wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2018, in which she didn't actually name him, but she implied she had been the victim of domestic abuse. And she wrote... Uh, two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. And uh, it was for those 11 words that Johnny Depp decided to sue uh, for $50 million. Um, and ultimately, the jury agreed with him and, and found that she had acted with malice and awarded him $15 million, which I think was later reduced to about $10 million. But again, on one level, you know, it was about defamation. But on another level, it was about it sort of mirrored some of the thorniest issues, I think, in, in US society, there was domestic violence and there was addiction and there was toxic relationships and there was ideas about fake news and, and misogyny. Um, and there was the myth of the perfect victim and how the public chooses who they believe in this kind of post Me Too world that we all we all live in again. And I found, you know, I quickly stopped being diverted by that trial and, and, and found it actually really disturbing how despite the really distressing and graphic nature of the evidence this was sort of treated as as live entertainment and Amber Heard was subjected to this absolutely mass public filleting um, that I think can only have been driven by uh, a reactionary misogyny and you know a lot of women were involved in the filleting of, of Amber Heard so I think there was a lot of internalized misogyny as well um, and I think ultimately you know that when you looked at the two sort of the two trials together, I think the only thing that you could conclude was the real losers are us, the public who, you know, here we are in, in 2022 and we are depressingly willing to be titillated by these tales of catfighting women and, and domestic abuse and 
uh, things that are shrouded in, in sort of misogyny and, and sexism and, and class snobbery. So I think, you know, ultimately, yeah, it was completely diverting and it was it was great light relief. But I think, you know, you did have to sort of look on it uh, as a another sort of fairly bleak moment for how women are seen in the media. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Maya, let's talk about the women briefly in Afghanistan as well, because uh, we did have you on recently and we talked about women in Iran and women in Afghanistan. But it, it's just um, p- women there are living under shock and circumstances, not able to go to school now, recently not being able to go to parks, being so oppressed by the Taliban. So just to have a word from your point of view about the situation there for women. Yeah, exactly. I think we need to, uh, when we talk about uh, like women in 2022, we need to talk about uh, women in Afghanistan because for me, the sad thing was many people would, they thought that Taliban would be different this time because they were pretending that for me, it was okay. They want to stabilize their power. They want to be a legitimate government. Uh, so they, they tried to pretend that, okay, this time it's going to be different. Uh, we are not going to probably treat women the same. But I think for Afghan women and also Iranians, it was clear that that's not going to be the case. They are Taliban and they are going to be like that because Taliban, because the Iranian government, the Islamic regime, they are basically at their roots, they are against women. And that's why this slogan, woman, life, freedom, Zandagi Azadi, we have women at the beginning, the first word, because at the roots, these are against they are against basically women. Um, yeah, and I remember, for example, I had this talk with one of my friends that was from that was going to Afghanistan from uh, on behalf of an NGO, and she was saying, "Yeah, at the end of the day, we need to we need to work with Taliban." And I was like, "No, I mean, you shouldn't recognize, you shouldn't work with Taliban. You can't basically work with Taliban." And after just two weeks, they have announced that women are banned from going to school to have education. Um, so what they want is basically to disappear women, to eliminate women from public spaces with different tools, uh, with their clothes, with just not letting them to go to school, to work. Uh, but for me, the other important thing to remember is that women in Afghanistan are still resisting. There have been so many videos that they give me goosebumps in groups of women on the street fighting and chanting like the most radical slogans and we see Taliban trying to stop them. There was this video of women, uh, I think they, they were kind of ch- chanting for right, right of education 
and there was this Talib with the gun who was trying to push this woman and the woman was pushing back and for me it was like Amazing. yeah this is this is really bravery i mean one of the things that i can't forget as i told you last time afghan women were the first ones to support iranian women uh, in in this movement and in the first days that the revolution iranian revolution happened they went to in front of iranian embassy in afghanistan to support uh, iranians and for me that was so heartwarming to see they have so many problems and they want to support us and there was this slogan that um, i mean it was chanted in many different occasions um, from kabul to tehran death to taliban so this shows that there is this solidarity and i mean as we said this is the same fight that we are fighting yeah thank you very much maya um wonderfully said and we're going to keep and in 2023 both of those stories Iran and Afghanistan are going to be key to all the things we cover because I think there's such a thread we can draw from the experience of women all over the world and it's just it is as you say incredible to see women rise up like that and be so courageous in the face of such oppression that I just I think we're all our we're all our breaths taken away by all of it and we're we're with those women. Um, Alison, I want to come to you next for another, I don't know if it's going to be memorable or a highlight or a standout moment. Which one is this? Yeah, this is, um, I suppose it's 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 going back to my, my home beat, as it were, in terms of, of politics and it was domestic politics. But I suppose on a more international stage, briefly, um, something that was kind of incredible in the last few weeks was this idea that when um, Sanna Moran, the, the uh, Finnish prime minister, went to visit Jacinda Ardern on a on a, an official visit in New Zealand that a reporter there asked um, asked them about was it that they had common interests and that they were the same age. Um, uh, now, I suppose the good news you could say is that the ridiculousness of that question meant that it went all over the world. But on another, it's that it did go all over the world and that there was still <laughs> this idea that two heads of state, two very impressive women, uh, and this is what it would be, it would be reduced to um domestically i'm reflecting on the fact that um we have a senior minister a female senior minister who's on her second maternity leave uh helen mcinty and that now uh, it, this is still an informal arrangement uh, they still say that we may possibly need uh, a referendum um for uh, a female minister you know to officially uh, to be able to go but i think it is it's a positive step in in the right direction and also that the fact that in recent weeks we're told that um, councillors will, once the laws are passed, this is councillors at local authority level, they'll be able to take maternity leave for the first time. And basically that they'd be offered the choice of appointing a substitute councillor that would cover uh, their their absence when they're on maternity leave, but also, also illness. And this will make, a, really, it'll make a huge difference. Uh, and it's a really positive thing. And even just as one example of how things are changing f- for the good uh, in that particular area is that in recent times, um, Fingal Council voted uh, to, that they will be having hybrid meetings. Again, something really sensible, probably helped by the pandemic and the fact, even the fact we're doing this on Zoom now. Um, so there's a lot of good, a lot to do, but there's a lot of a lot of good movement. Uh, and we're speaking also in the week that um, the Iraqis Committee on, on Gender Equality, uh, chaired by Ivana Bacic, the Labour leader, are are um, are reporting, um, and that's arising out of the Citizens Assembly on gender equality. So hopefully, a lot of what's contained in that uh, will see action uh, in twenty twenty three. 
And on the gender equality thing, it's really great to hear those radio ads at the moment uh, getting telling companies it's time for them to post uh, the information about what they pay their women and what they pay their men. And that's all going to start coming out in 2023. That's going to be really interesting, especially when um, on International Women's Day, when we see certain companies, you know, getting very involved in that. But actually, we'll have more of a knowledge about the reality of what they actually pay their the women. Yeah, the we'll see. Yeah, we get to see. <laughs> are they more for a coat or still just knickers? I mean, there's so, yeah. I mean, there is so much uh, <laughs> virtue signaling, but when you get down to it, then, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. Exactly. Now, we're coming to an end. I just want to mention a few other things that that happened. Obviously, the death of Vicky Phelan was very sad, such an incredible campaigner. We saw the start of the um, war in Ukraine with Russia invading, which has affected so many women and girls and so many of them who've come here for refuge. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, we had the 10th anniversary of Savita's death. And um, also, we haven't spoken about Roe versus Wade. I don't know if anybody wants to talk about that, but it's felt like a huge um, issue this year for for us looking at America and seeing their rights being rowed back, even as we kind of advance. Just an incredible time. Yeah, I think the the one the briefly, I think that it it was seen sort of back in the late summer that this issue was really going to help Democrats in the in the the, in the elections that that were on a couple of weeks ago. Then it looked like they weren't looking at the opinion polls. But I think given how unexpectedly well the Democrats did, given what is seen as, as uh, President Biden's relative unpopularity, I think you'd have to say that the Roe v. Wade decision fed fed into that. And, um, you know, that that's certainly, I mean, look, it's still appalling that uh, that it happened and, and, and such a shock, but that at least that that it, things are pointing in the, in the right direction yeah. in terms of it having, it's so polarised over there, but this issue is one, I think, that definitely um, was, it was a uniting one. And I think the Republicans were completely blindsided by the fact that abortion was something that people, as particularly young women, got went out and voted on. And that- well, I think, yeah, well, look, this is an issue for another day. I just think the Republicans have lost sight of of so much, uh, you know, and they certainly they certainly misread that 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 particular issue on the ground. And I, I think the message out of that really was that there there can be no rowing back of of women's rights. I mean, you can try, you can take women's rights away from them, but actually, society won't stand for it. Women won't stand for it, and, and society won't stand for it. So I think I think ultimately that was uh, was probably quite a positive moment in in U.S. society after a really really grim few few years. Um, well, listen, let's look ahead very quickly to twenty twenty. I'm going to ask you all for something that you're looking forward to personally and then more on the global or domestic stage. Uh, So I'll come to you, Maya. What about you, your hopes for 2023? I mean, personally, the first thing that I would like is to be able to go back to Iran for our new year because our new year is in March, beginning of spring. So it has been 10 years that I wanted to go back, but I couldn't. uh, And... Now I feel there's hope uh, to go to be able to go back to Iran for for the new year, and of course, I mean the personal wish. It's it's more kind of um, it's not just personal. It means that I'm wishing for Iran to be to be a free country, so that people can get rid of the Islamic Republic and um, we can have a secular democratic country. So that's basically my wish for for 2023. Well, your your wish is, has got both of those things, the personal and the political, all wrapped up in one incredible wish. And I think we all would share that for you. And I hope you do get back there in March and that the, the conditions are such that you're able to go. Jennifer, what about you? I'm kind of a fan of New Year's resolutions. Generally, I'm a fan of lists and I'm a fan of kind of anything that sort of suggests 
a bit of woo-woo or self-improvement. Um, but this year I came across the idea of kind of the non-to-do list or unresolutions. Um, and I think that sort of taps in really with where I'm at psychologically after a really draining year. So I will be looking ahead to less of everything next year. I just want to make some unresolutions. I think it's been a really good time actually with everything that's going on in the world for focusing on what really matters and you know the amount of stuff that we've wasted time on and we've wasted time worrying about so my my plan for this year is is less of everything that doesn't sort of make me feel better about the world so less time on screens and less spending on things that I don't need which has been one of my few personal accomplishments this year I've actually managed to kill my Zara habit um you know dead uh, less procrastination and just you know less worrying about things that aren't my problem or that I can't control so it's not very exciting, I'm afraid, but that's it. Yeah, there's just going to be less of Jennifer next that's, year. That's grand. And what about on on a less personal note, more for the world? I mean, we haven't mentioned the fact that the women's soccer team qualified for the World Cup, which is amazing. And that's going to happen in the summer. Now, it was a bit mired by the fact that they sang Ooh, Ow, Up There in the dressing room. Not ideal. But um, I think people are, even though they've been fined for that, I think, by the, the global uh, sports body. Um, so that's going to be happening, which is a great thing. Alison, have you got anything else? What are you looking forward to? You know, Rashid, we have a notice board in our kitchen, um, which clearly isn't, um, you know, I don't look at what's behind the magnets often enough because the other day I saw that just before, it was a 2018, was just before the pandemic, the Christmas, was that 2017? Anyway, we sat down as a family and sort of did what were we all going to, what were our, our New Year resolutions, right? And my youngest two, I think may have got a laminating machine for Christmas, <laughs> laminated. She sounds right? like she'd be, you get on with her, Jennifer. Completely. Yeah, and we had all of, you know, all these things that we were going to do and what happened only weeks later we had a pandemic so I mean it was a real case of like god the innocence of us the naivety so I think that shows um that we should be more in keeping with what what Jennifer has has said and be more relaxed about it and you know that the Chinese phrase of you know we live in interesting times I mean boy have we been living in interesting times we have been blighted (laughs) by them for the last couple of years so if anything I'm hoping for a non-event the fact that I'm sitting here with a nice, given the season that's in it, a nice fleecy red blanket and we had a discussion before we went on air about the the joys of fingerless gloves when you're typing. I guess I'm hoping for this uh, cold snap (laughs) to, to, or cold snaps not to be too much a part of of the new year and just a fairly boring time will do me. Thank you very much. Uh, I think that's very, very good. And what about politically? Is there anything coming up for you? I mean, we have a new Taoiseach and uh, yeah. things are getting closer to an election, still not there. But what do you think politically is going to ha- happen in Ireland? It's it's a tough time politically with the, the war, the war in Ukraine, uh, with inflation, cost of living and all of that stuff. So that is, I mean, and, and we're not in any way in command of our own our own destinies because so much of it depends on what happens with with that war. So it's impossible to predict. But I mean, I do listening to Maya at the start of this made me realise that and I mean, not to have been home for 10 years and the homesickness of that. You know, it puts it does put everything in kind of in context, doesn't it? Uh, in terms of um, what what we might wish for here, or the the deprivation or the hardship that we that we think we're suffering. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to do a final note um, to shout out to Taylor Swift, whose birthday it was uh, this week when we were recording this podcast. She had a new album out. I don't know if you all are fans. Maya, are you a Taylor Swift fan? 
She's nodding away there. I can just tell everyone. She's definitely a fan. And, we're, all Swift, um, we're all Swifties of one form for another. Yay, Russian. that's great. Well, Taylor, hopefully, I'm hoping and praying, my wish is that Taylor comes here to do another concert, which would be amazing. And also, um, one of the thing, lines on her, I'd had this very strange experience that I wrote a column about where I'd been saying in my house that I'm trying to keep my side of the street clean. And if I could just do that, then everything else would, would fall into place and be much better. And I wouldn't get so angry about stuff that I kind of, things that I, I shouldn't be getting angry about. And um, lo and behold, the album uh, dropped, as they say. And Taylor had a line about keeping her side of the street <laughs> clean. So I was kind of felt like I was in this cosmic uh, thing with, with Taylor. And um, that's what I'm going to do for 2023. We'll try because it's hard. But it's just about, about that thing of I can only look after my own spot. I can only do what I can do on this side of the street and everything else is going to happen anyway. And so um, I'm just trying to to live that a bit more because it's uh, it's the way forward for peace of mind because we can't put out all the fires and we can't fix everything. But what we can do is our own little patch. And I suppose... In a way, um, Maya, that's what we're talking about in terms of we ca- you can't we can't fix everything in Afghanistan and Iran, but by keeping our attention on it and just looking at what we can do, there's maybe some hope there uh, for those important issues. But I just want to thank you all and wish you all the best for 2023. I hope it isn't such a I suppose the word is shit show. Are we using that word? It was 2022 was a bit of a shit show, a perma crisis. But let's hope it's a bit better. And uh, thank you all for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Thanks, Roisin. Thank you. Happy Christmas and Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. That was Jennifer O'Connell, Alison O'Connor and Maya Ostover there. We hope you enjoyed that look back and we want to wish all our listeners a very Happy New Year. Thank you so much for your support through 2022. And we hope you will stay with us for 2023 as we have lots of exciting stuff planned. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, Aideen Finnegan and me, Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, enjoy yourselves over the new year and I'll talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.